Amen. So we, as I mentioned, we're starting a new series on Judges tonight, as you see the new slide. So we'll be uh, moving into Judges. Over the next several weeks, we'll talk about uh, the different uh, judges that are in the book of Judges. And so we're not necessarily going to go by Judges or in order uh, as best we can. We're going to just follow the narrative of Scripture. And so uh, as you show up over the next several weeks, you'll be able to get um, the information on that so as we, uh, we look at Judges, I was thinking about the first part of Judges, and as we uh, jump into Judges, I'm going to give you some history and some context, but I, I was thinking about, um, you know, the way that things worked out here at the beginning for Judges. Several years ago, I owned a lawn care business, and I was in uh, college, and so I was running a lawn care business, so I had some people that worked for me, and so uh, sometimes I would send them out, and they would go and do some work, and so on one particular day, I sent them out. It was a, a local job for them to do. It was only five, six miles away, and so they went out, and they, uh, you know, they took care of the lawn. They, you know, did all the maintenance on the yard and took all the bush trimming, you know, did everything that we we did as part of our job, and so we got everything done, and they, you know, left, and so they uh, brought all the stuff back, and so they, you know, they told me the equipment's returned. They had gotten everything finished. Well, a few hours later, I get a phone call from the homeowner, and uh, I know them, and so uh, she said, hey, I, you know, I, I want to touch base with you. She said, uh, are y'all, are y'all coming back? And I said, uh, I don't, I don't think so. Is, is something wrong? And she said, can, can you come to my house and I said, yeah, well, that's never a good sign. You know, if you're, if you're a boss and, you know, someone says, hey, can you come look at what your employees did? That's a bad sign. And so I get in the truck and drive over there. And so I get there and, uh, you know, I see the front yard and it looks fantastic. And, and so I think, man, these guys did a great job, you know. And so I go up and knock on the door. And so uh, I said, hey. And she was like, hey, look, um, I, I want to talk to you about the yard. And I said, uh, okay, well, well, what about it? And she says, well, just follow me. And so we walk around the garage and we get to right before the backyard. And then we look and nothing was done in the backyard. No one, nothing was touched. Every blade of grass was standing as proud and tall as it could. And uh, all the bushes needed trimming. They did absolutely nothing in the backyard. And so she said, you know, it was no explanation necessary. And I said, I'll go get the equipment, you know, so I go back and get the equipment, I had to come back and fix everything. And so I was talking to the guys, you know, like, hey, what happened? Oh, well, we didn't know we were supposed to do the backyard too. Well, when do you ever go and half do a job, right? You know, oftentimes in our world now, there are so many examples that I could have used in this illustration because unfortunately, we live in a culture that the majority of the world loves to half do things. Now, that would probably, hopefully not, but probably be the point in the message where most of you would give a hearty amen to, right? Because if you go to a restaurant or you go to a store, you are getting, unfortunately, half service most of the time. No one is going above and beyond. And as we think about the book of Judges, what we see right out of the gate is that what happens at the beginning is that the Israelites are half doing it. And it's unfortunately common both for them, as we'll see what that leads to, but it's common for us. And so the challenge for us as we begin the book of Judges is to ask ourselves, what does my walk look like? 
You know, it's easy for us to get into this mechanism of coasting to where we come to church and we go home, we come to church and we go home, and, you know, we're so encouraged, and this happened and that happened, and God's doing this over here, and and we see these things happening, and we just kind of get in this coast mode, and then we began to not put forth as much effort, if you will. And there's been this move, you know, there was, I grew up in legalism, so everything was about effort. And so there was this movement to do, do, do. And then it was, no, 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 it's grace. And so it's B, 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 but it's not either or, it's both and. And what the Israelites will see here, experience, is that they thought that they could just half do and that God would be okay with that. You see, the book of Judges shows us that the Bible is not just a book of virtues, of do this and everything is going to be okay. It's not just about following moral examples either. It's not if you just do this, then everything's fine. Well, the, the why behind what we're doing matters more than the what we are doing. And so as we begin tonight, the Bible is a book. Well, what is it? It's about a God of mercy who continually works despite our resistance. A God who continually works despite us giving our half efforts. And so tonight you may be challenged, but certainly you'll be encouraged to know that even if that is you, if you're sitting here and you're saying, you know what, I really could try harder. I could do more. I could be more involved. I could, you know, be, you know, more intentional. Well, there's good news that in spite of our failure to do that, God still loves us. And as we'll see with Israel, God still intends and does use them. You see, Judges is actually filled with people just like you and me. People who have God-given potential for greatness, but we have unfailing capacity for catastrophe, right? I mean, if we're honest, we all have the ability to really mess things up. And Israel was just that way. So as we jump into the book of Judges tonight, you'll see that chapters 1 through 21 cover about three to 350 years of the history uh, of Israel. And so the premise of the entire book, which we'll eventually get to, is in chapter 17 and verse 6. <clears throat> and it says, in those days... It'll come up on the screen here. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the premise of our study in Judges. You see, the, the tagline for our study is God's unfolding grace. And we'll see that God unfolds his grace in many, many different ways. Uh, but what Israel has done is that they began to and continued to do what they thought was right, what they thought was acceptable. And again, every one of us are guilty of doing that. When you get on autopilot, what you begin to do is to depend upon your own wisdom and your own knowledge instead of on God's wisdom and God's knowledge. Instead of leaning on the Holy Spirit to guide you in discernment, often we just do what we want to do. And what's happened in our world today is, is all, you know, we've seen the progression of this self-love to where now anybody can do anything that they want because whatever you want to do is right according to you, right? And so in our own world, the trumpet of today is do you. But what are the consequences of that being wrong? So if you're here tonight and you say, well, you know, I, I kind of do my own thing. I do what I think is right. Well, what are the consequences if you're wrong? Because the reality is 
you're not perfect, that I'm not perfect, and that I'm not always going to make the right decision. And so I need to depend upon God to show me those things. So what are the consequences of giving a half effort and only obeying what I want to? Certainly, I hope that is not you, but unfortunately, the stark reality is that oftentimes that is us, that we only do what we want to do. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4, God declared to Israel that he would give them the land of Canaan. In verse 3, he says, Every uh, place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. And so God had declared to the nation of Israel, this is what I'm giving you because this is what I promised you. And then in verse 7 and 8, he goes on to say, uh, in verse 8, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. So in other words, just because there's grace doesn't mean there's no obedience right? That we still are commanded to obey. And God is declaring to the nation of Israel that if you do these things, good things will come for you. And the same is certainly true for us tonight. You see, victory will come because of our dependence upon God. If if you're in the middle of a situation in your life right now, you're struggling, you have difficulty, uh, you really can't get past this is a mountain, a mountain is in, you know, the forefront, how will you get through that? It will be, victory will come in your life through dependence upon God. That is how true victory always comes. There is no other way. And so victory is always through dependence upon God. The Bible teaches us further in Joshua 23 He says, uh, the Lord your God will push them back. And so in Joshua, what they're saying is, hey, well, what does the land of Canaan look like? If we're going in to possess this, and God, as we saw in Joshua 1, has declared that this is what we shall overtake. Well, what about those people that are living there? Well, in verse 5 of chapter 23, the Lord your God will push them back before you, and he will drive them out of your sight. Again, what is it? Victory is the dependence upon God. So he's saying, I will do this for you. You shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from neither to the right or to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or or bow down to them. But what shall they do? Well, he says in verse 8, You shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. In other words, victory comes through dependence. And so God doesn't want them to fall under the spiritual influence of the Canaanites. For us, we would say God doesn't want us to fall under the dependence upon culture, the dependence upon self. And so this discipleship, this walking with God that he's introducing to them is predicated upon our dependence upon him. See, in discipleship, if you're in a D group this year, um, you are about to be in the assessment phase, if you will. And in your D group, you're going to have an opportunity to measure how God has worked in your life. And I can guarantee you that if you did not depend upon God to work in your life this year, He did not work in your life this year. 
right? Oftentimes, we, we, again, if we go through the motions, we're not going to see God doing those things. I was always taught that God does the things in which he gets the most glory for. So in other words, if it can be explained by man, it might have happened or been caused by man, right? That we want to live in those moments of dependence. But sometimes dependence doesn't lead us down the expected path that we desire. I mean, if you think about following Jesus, you probably aren't where you thought you would be if you're following Jesus. Because why? Because he leads us in places that we don't necessarily expect him to lead us. And so as we see in Judges 1, we'll also see again next week, the author gives us this introduction into uh, the book of, of, of Israel in the book of Judges, both in chapter 1 and chapter 2, to see that they are taking a path that they did not expect. So we'll pick up in, in chapter 1 here with Judges. We see, first of all, in verse 1, that Joshua has passed away. Now, you see the same thing in the middle of chapter 2. And so chapter 1 and chapter 2 are very similar to Genesis, where the author is giving the information, and then in chapter 2, he's looking back to the information. So it begins with what we will come to know as the spiritual high water mark of the book. In Judges chapter 1, verse 1, we read, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And so the Israelites say, Hey, there's, there's a mountain in front of me. There's, there's an enemy in front of me. How do I pursue? How do I proceed? What do I do next? Now, just a few years earlier, Joshua had challenged the nation of Israel, and they had responded. So we're, again, we're at the spiritual high watermark. Joshua told them in verse 24, you're familiar with the verse. He says, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land that you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." And the people responded, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And they go on to say, for it was God who did this in our life. He's the one who brought us out of Egypt, out of slavery, who did great signs. It was the Lord who drove out before us all of the people, the Amorites who lived in this land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now, if Judges ended with what Joshua, they declared to Joshua at the end of Joshua, it would be an amazing book, right? We would say, man, that's the standard. That's the way that I need to live. But thankfully, it doesn't end there. Because the reality is that that's the cry of every believer's heart, is that, therefore, I will serve the Lord. But often, our hearts lead us astray from doing that. So here we have the Israelites saying, hey, this is our chance to do what God commanded. We knew, Joshua proclaimed that we were going to have an opportunity to do what God called us to do. And so they're asking, hey, who should we send up to do what you have declared, God, what you have promised that you will accomplish? And so they want to say, they want to know who will go, who will obey what God has commanded. You see, God is not going to make you obey him. God is not going to make you obey him. You get to obey him. You don't have to do that. You don't have to follow God. You don't have to come to church. Now, the consequences of not doing that are grave. But you don't have, no one is going to make you do that. No one from this church is going to call you and say, you have to be here. 
right? That is your choice to do that. It's my choice to do that. We get to be a part of the things that God is doing. And so essentially what is being asked of the nation of, of the 12 tribes of Israel here is who wants to be a part of what God is doing? You see, that's what obedience is in our life. It is who wants to be a part of what God is doing. You see, when we follow God, spiritual leadership, uh, Henry Blackaby said, is moving people onto God's agenda. And so when you and I obey God, guess what we're doing? We're saying, yes, I want to be a part of what God is doing. Because my obedience, or lack thereof, doesn't stop God from working. Your, your disobedience doesn't stop God from working. It just prevents you from being a part of what He is doing. Does that make sense? And so as we think about this, God is not going to make us do this. We get to do it. You see, they had clearly accepted the authority of God by the fact that even after the death of Joshua and they had no clear leader to follow, they were still obeying the mission that was set before them. And that mission was to conquer the promised land. They had also sought the Lord's direction. Again, they, they've started out really well here. They're asking God, God, what do you want us to do? And in verse 2, God says, Judah shall go up. Very simple, very clear, very direct. But verse 3 says, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me. That is not what God said. Right? But immediately, the very next verse, Judah says, oh, God wants me to go, so I'm going to do something different. And so he goes to his brother Simeon and says, hey, would you go with me? If God wanted Simeon and Judah to go, then that's what verse 2 would have said. Right? He would have said, Judah and Simeon shall go. But as we've already seen, even in verse 2 and verse 3, the theme of this book is already beginning to take shape. Right? Right? that we do what is right in our own eyes. And so in, in verse, uh, and so we, we've already seen, uh, you know, what's, what Simeon and Judah now are concocting. And so in verse 4, it says that they went. And so Judah went up, verse 4, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites. Now verse 5 says they, pay attention there, and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now I wrote, I put that in the handout because if you heard me say that and didn't read it for yourself, you may not believe that. I mean, what, what is happening here? They, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes? Now, you know, there's obvious reasons for that. You can't shoot a bow if you don't have a thumb. And you can't run very fast, and you're not very stable if you don't have a big toe. And so there's problems with that. But that's not the problem that we're going to see with them cutting off their thumbs and toes. So here they said, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to commit them to destruction. We're going to maim them. Now, Judah and Simeon... There's a correlation here. Judah and Simeon had a natural bond because they are natural offsprings of Jacob and Leah. All right, so they've got some bond here. They're, they're, they're kin to each other. They, they're the natural offspring of Jacob and Leah. And so because of that, guess what happens? Well, our response to obedience sometimes can be clouded by our desire for familiarity. 
Now let me unpack that for a second. Our response to obedience can sometimes be clouded by our desire for familiarity. God has called the nation of Israel to overtake the land of Canaan, the promised land. And he specifically called Judah to do that. But Judah said, Simeon, I want you to go with me. We are the same way. That oftentimes we want to do what is familiar to us. Or we want to bring someone who is more equipped than us. Or we want to partner with someone who may do all the work. Or someone who has been there before. But if God is calling us to do that, then in obedience we've got to step out and to do that. You see, there is a difference between preferred obedience and sacrificial obedience. Preferred obedience is only obeying the things that I want to obey. Sacrificial obedience is also obeying those things that I do not want to obey. But it's pretty convenient and unfortunately common for us to exhibit preferred obedience opposed to sacrificial obedience. You see, Judah would be alone if Judah went. They would be by themselves. How would they win without partnership. You see, when God calls you to do something, it is never dependent upon the who. When God calls you to do something, it is never dependent upon the who. If God calls you to be uh, a missionary, the question is not who is going with me. That is not the question. If God calls you uh, to serve your neighbor or to be a part of a ministry or to do something at the church, the question is never who is going to be involved in that. All you need to know, all I need to know is that God is involved in it and that he has asked me or he's commanded me to do that. And so the answer is yes. Corinthians says that the promises of God are found in the yes. The question is never who. It is never who. It is always dependent upon the what. Obedience is always dependent upon the what. And we saw this past Sunday. What was the what for Genesis? It was not, it, it was what did God say? It was not that I, what I want to do. It's what did God say? It's not who will be there. Right? So oftentimes in our obedience, we, we dismiss or we diminish the what and we pay more attention to the who. What did God tell you to do? That is what you should do. Not who is going with me. Now, God will use people in the process. I'm not diminishing people. Um, He'll provide people in the process, but he doesn't need anyone to do that. Hence, you do not need anyone to accomplish what God has commanded you to do. Many of you know our story. Um, Years ago, God called us to move, and we packed up everything, sold it all, moved to Virginia. And uh, so... We moved alone. No one went with us. It was me and a five-year-old and a one-year-old and my wife, and we moved to Virginia. And we didn't know a single person, but we went. Why did we do that? Because God called us to do that. It's a fantastic story. Here's what happens when you're alone. You come face-to-face with your belief system. When God called us to Virginia, and again, many of you know our story, we came face to face with our belief system. Here's what obedience looks like. Obedience looks like what? What did God call you to do? Then that's what you should do. God called Judah to go and fight the Canaanites. And Judah says, well, who is going with me? 
The question is, did God really say, well, that becomes really big in your life. Because when you obey and you're alone, then you better know what God said. And see, this is what, you know, going back to what I said earlier, our response to obedience can sometimes be clouded by our desire for familiarity, is a lot of people are piggybacking their obedience on what God has told someone else to do. And so instead of doing the hard work and saying, God, what do you want me to do? We're piggybacking faith on someone else and saying, whatever God told you to do, I want to be a part of that. But the question is, what did God call you to do? It's a question that God called Judah to do. And you have to cling to what God says with all that you have. I have been there multiple times. When God tells you to do something, you better know what he said, you better believe what he said, and you better do what he said. And when that happens, you're not always promised that it's going to be rosy because it's not always going to be rosy. And you're not always promised that you're going to have people with you because there were many times where we were all alone. Many times that we were isolated and all alone. And guess what? God became our source. But God became our substance. God became our dependence. We learned how to fully trust on God. Why? Because we didn't say, God, who is going with us? But we said, God, this is what you said and we will obey it. You see, this is the obedience that God desires in our lives. Not obedience in isolation necessarily, but obedience in total dependence. Obedience in total dependence. You see, not only did the who become very important, the what was important, as I'm I'm illustrating here in Deuteronomy chapter 20, The Bible says in the cities, this will come up on the board. The cities uh, of the people that the Lord God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. Again, very clear instructions. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Lord your God, as the Lord your God has commanded, that you may not Teach, they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, so that you and so you sin against the Lord if you learn those. So God's saying, Do not do this. What did He say? Do not do this. The command was to commit them to utter destruction, but that is not what they did. What did they do? Well, they cut off their thumbs and their big toes. It's, it's hard not to say that and laugh. I mean, what are they doing? Well, the reason they did that is because that was a pagan culture. You see, cutting the thumbs and big toes was a pagan practice. And so they began to do what? What do you say in verse 18? That they may not teach you to do according to their practices? That's what they're doing. They're drawing from the standards of the people that are around them. You see, the problem is that they partially obeyed. And in their partial obedience, they became influenced by uh, pagan influence. And so the result is what? Well, God's judgment throughout history is to give people over to, their, to the consequences that they have chosen. And so for the sake of time, you'll read in Judges and uh, verses 5 all the way down to verse 16. And in verse 16, the Bible says they went and settled with the people. So God told them very clearly, very directly, clear out the land. Don't allow their pagan influences to affect you. They didn't do that. 
And now in verse 16, we're 16 verses into the book of Judges, and they settled. They settled. Now, we could spend the rest of the night on settling because we settle in most areas of our life. We settle for the things that God has in store for us. We settle for the things that God wants us to be a part of. We settle in our worship. We settle in our quiet time. We settle in our prayer lives. Because we only get a glimpse. We're so easily satisfied. And so we only get a glimpse of the things that God could do. And we're satisfied with just a little bit. Instead of desiring more of who God is, we settle. And they settled. They assimilated. And in verse 19, the Bible says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. So in spite of their assimilation, and in spite of their settling, God was still with them. It says, but Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Sounds logical, doesn't it? So the question that we have to ask at this point is, okay, well, time out. God called them to possess the promised land. In verse 19, it says that they could not drive out the inhabitants because of iron chariots. So did God call them to do something that he would not provide a way to do. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, because Judah clearly says, I mean, we're trying here, but we can't do it. Well, let's rewind for a second. This will come up on the screen. It says, and I'm going to read a few verses, and then I'll put the last one up on the screen. The people of, of Joseph, this is Joshua 17, 16. The people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plains have chariots of iron. Both those in Beth Sheen and its villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. And then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous, a numerous people, and you have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, verse 18, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites. Though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. So in other words, the opposition to what God has called us to do is not opposition at all. You see, through the lens of our own eyes, we see opposition. I mentioned at the beginning, maybe you're here and you have a mountain before you. That opposition is not opposition for God. He had already told them, there will be chariots of iron, but fear not. You can do it. You can overcome. But what happened is that their power was diminished because their faith was diminished. They, didn't, they no longer believed that God could do what God called them to do. They no longer believed it. You see, often in our life, it is not through our lack of strength when we fail to accomplish God's desires. It is our lack of faith in His strength. It is not lack of strength. It is our lack of faith in God's strength. You see, the things that God calls us to do, He will accomplish. What does the Bible say in the New Testament? That the good work that He began in us, He will complete. And so in verse 19, it says, But He could not drive out the inhabitants. Well, tonight I would like to tell you that it wasn't that they could not do it. It was simply that they would not do it. 
It was not that they could not do it. It was that they would not do it. You see, God is never going to put us in a position where we cannot obey Him. Listen to that again. God is never going to put us in a position where we cannot obey Him. The Israelites, the the tribe of Judah, wasn't that they could not do it. It was that they would not do it. You see, when God gives a responsibility, He will always provide the resources to carry it out. Even if it seems as though the resources aren't there. I grew up and we sang, He's an on-time God. Yes, He is. Does anybody else know this song? He may not come when you want Him, but He's always right on time. You ever heard that? He's an on-time God. And so when you think that He may not show up, Well, guess what? He's going to show up because if he called you to do it, then he will provide a way to do that. God will never call you to do something that you cannot obey him in. But so many times we hear, and maybe maybe it's even you tonight, that you say, well, I can't. We say, I can't, where, where God is saying, well, no, it's not that you can't. It's that you won't. It's that you won't. You know, as I thought about the things that we, we won't do, like there's, there's probably things that you won't do. Like, for instance, I'm not getting on my roof because I'm scared of heights. I tried that before, and it didn't work out well, and I'm not going back up there. All right? So if you like heights and I have roof problems, can you come help me? Because I'm not going up there. Right? So, I mean, there's things that I won't do. There's things that you won't do. You know, so we, you know, we can joke about that, that we're not going to take heights, or we're not going to eat, you know, asparagus or whatever. There's things that we won't do. But what about when it comes to our faith? What will we not do? What is it that we're saying I can't do when, when God's actually saying, no, it's not that you can't do it. It's that you will not do it. When we first started D groups, I intentionally had my first several years of D group um, at 5.30 a.m. in the morning on purpose. Some of you in the room were a part of some of those groups with me. And I did it on purpose because here's what, I, here's what I felt like. If you are committed to growing in your faith and you want to be all that God wants you to be, time will not be an issue for you, right? You'll get up at 4 a.m. if you have to do that. You'll do whatever it takes to be who God wants you to be. And it was a challenge for me too, right? To say, hey, you can get up at 5 a.m. and meet with some guys. And so I'm challenging myself and I'm challenging. This is what I want to do. W-A-N-T, I desire to do that. But so many times in our own life, there's things that we say, well, I can't do that. There's no way. And so as I thought about, hey, what's most common? I was reading about some of these things about how we often use that. Well, what's most common in every one of our lives? There's three different things I want to just point out to where we often say, I can't. Well, the first area of I can't is in forgiveness. In the area of forgiveness, we say, well, I can't forgive them. I could never forgive them for what they've done to me. Scott, I'm not sure if it's uh, responding or not. I can't forgive them. I can't forgive them for what they've done. I can't forgive them for what they said. I can't forgive them for the way that they acted. Forgiveness is often an area of our lives where we say, I can't do that. And God is declaring, well, you can, you just choose not to. So forgiveness is a big area. The second area that we see that is uh, we say, I can't, where God's saying that you won't, is in telling the truth. Man, our world has a problem with telling the truth. 
That we, we, we don't want to say the things that are true. You know, in D-Group, we talked this year about having accountability and calling people up to be who God wants them to be. And oftentimes, we won't do that. We won't say the things that need to be said. We say things like, well, if I tell them the truth, well, it may hurt their feelings. Have you ever said or thought that? We all have. We're all guilty of that. Or we say, well, I want them to like me, and so I'm just going to say what I think that they want to hear. I mean, people are guilty of that. We live in this culture to where we want people to like us, and so we'll just say what we think they want to hear. And so God's saying, no, it's not that you can't tell them the truth. It's that you're choosing not to tell them the truth. The last area is in temptation. The last area is in temptation to where we say, well, I just, I can't stop doing that. I know God doesn't want me to do that. I know it's a sin or whatever, but I can't stop. And the reality is you can, you just choose not to. Now, in and of yourself, you may not have the ability to stop that. And, and chances are you probably don't. So it's not, that, it's not that you in your own power have the ability to do that. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you are not relying on God and you're not asking for people to come alongside you and to help you stop doing that. Because that's why God put us in community. That's why there's the Trinity. God gave us the perfect picture of the Trinity, of working together. And so when we say, I can't, what we're saying is I refuse to, and, and I reject the things in which God has equipped me to do. That I have the Spirit of God to overcome, but I'm not utilizing that. That I've got people around me that could help me, but I'm not allowing them to know the failures of my life. And what happens when we say I can't is that it begins to spread into other areas. It begins to spread in other areas of our life, and it begins to spread in other people's lives. Because fascinatingly enough, if you read the rest of the chapter of chapter 1 in Judges, here's what you'll find. And I'll put it on your page. Verse 21, Judah said in verse 19, hey, we can't drive them out. Then in verse 21, what do we start to see? Well, then the people of Benjamin did not drive them out. And then Manasseh did not drive them out. And then Ephraim did not drive them out. And then Zebulun did not drive them out. And then Asher did not drive them out. And then Naphtali did not drive them out. What is happening? All of a sudden, we've got this victory cry. And and these people come into uh, the land of Canaan. And they say, hey, we're here because God told us to be here. And he has promised that he will give us victory. And all of a sudden, no one can win. No one can win. You know, this would be a great time for us to talk about men and fathers, right? That you set the spiritual uh, temperature of your family. And when you say and you illustrate by your life that you can't and won't do things for God, guess what happens? Your family will then can't and won't do things for God, right? In your circle, in your community group, in your D group, when you say, I can't and I won't, what begins to happen is you're giving excuses for other people in your life not to do what God called you to do. You see, when we fail to obey the next blank on your handout, even partially what we're communicating to the world around us is what we really believe. And we're painting a false narrative of who God really is. We are communicating what we really believe, and we are painting a false narrative of who God really is. 
When you say, I can't or I won't, what you're saying is, well, I don't believe God is able. My faith can't support that action. You see, it seems as though they did the best that they could, doesn't it? We tried. It is chariots of iron. I mean, that does seem pretty impossible. And what our world would say, think about this. I've thought about this, this these last couple of weeks. The world would also say this. Well, that was nice of you to let them stay. You know, even though now you're the boss, you know, you're the master, you're the owner, that was very kind of you to allow them to stick around. That's what the world would say. Hey, iron chariots, pretty impossible. It was very kind of you to let them stay. Oftentimes, we can certainly relate. We tend to justify our half obedience. Well, at least I'm trying. I did my best. Hey, we all make mistakes. Well, well, no one is perfect. All right, those are all things that we, that we say to justify our can'ts. So what does God say in response to that? Well, we get to chapter 2. And the very first words of chapter 2 says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. Uh-oh. I mean, when the angel of the Lord shows up, well, then there's a problem, right? So chapter 2 gives us some context for chapter 1. You see, in Joshua chapter 5 in verse 9, it says, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. So we're getting some context here. Remember, the angel went from Gilgal to Bochum. So Gilgal is very significant. It is the first place that Israel came to after crossing the Jordan River. It is where they renewed their covenant with God and they reinstituted the Passover. It is also where God appeared before Joshua before their first military campaign. So God clearly has been working in Gilgal. And the angel comes from Gilgal to Bochum. And so what we find about Gilgal is that it's a place of victory. It's a place of blessing. It's a place of covenant renewal. Now that's very, very important. And it's very instructive for us tonight. Think about this. This is a place of victory. It is a place of blessing. And it's a place of covenant renewal. Israel has just utterly failed. And they have disobeyed God. And instead of like Sodom and Gomorrah, him sending fire and brimstone from heaven, he sends uh, the angel. And the angel shows up, and, and, and it is so important where he comes from. What God is doing is he is reminding them of his covenant with them. He is reminding them of his covenant with them. Years ago, I preached on Joshua, and I talked about the stones where they set an altar up. And I get chill bumps right now as I think about this. There are places in your life to where you have experienced the activity of God. That is your Gilgal, okay? That is your Gilgal. That is where God has done a work in your life that you will never forget, that radically changed your life and impacted the trajectory of the way that you are moving. That is what Gilgal is. 
It is a place in your life where you have seen God do things that you've never seen before and that you've experienced God maybe in ways that you have never experienced before. This is the place maybe where you struggled and God broke through. Maybe this is the place where you flourished and God greatly blessed like he did the nation of Israel. That is what Gilgal represents here. It is the place where God was working. And the, and the angel, it says in verse 2, it says, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And so this is, this is the Lord God saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is not showing up and saying, you all failed, and I'm done with this. But he, he first reminds them of who he is. Tonight, if up until this point you've said, there's a lot of I can'ts in my life. There's a lot of partial obedience. I want you to know that God's first declaration to you is not you failed, but it is that I have not failed you. God is saying, I did not break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But, he says, you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So what God is doing here is he is declaring his utter faithfulness. If you were in D group a few weeks ago, you read in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Remember that? For he cannot deny himself. God is declaring to Israel, he is declaring to us tonight that what he says he will do. What he says he will do. When he says that we are forgiven, we can believe him. When he says that we are chosen, we can believe him. When he says that he will finish the work that he has started in us, we can believe him. Scott, it stopped on me again. So we can believe what God has said that he will do. The entire purpose was to cleanse Canaan of the idols so that Israel could live in faithfulness to God. But that is not what the Israelites did. And so the angel shows up to confront them of their covenant unfaithfulness. You see, this was Israel's attempt. This was Israel's attempt at partial lordship. But as you see on the board, either God is Lord of all of your life or He is Lord of none of your life. He is either Lord of all of your life or He is Lord of none of your life. Following Jesus is not a selection process in which you take the things that you want and leave the things that you don't want. It is where you and I surrender all of who we are to everything that we know about God and we say, God, the things that I don't know, I trust you. That's what Lordship is is making him the boss, the master, surrendering and submitting to his lordship. And so what they're doing here is that they're trying to, to both serve God and their own desires. But So God reminds them, here are the things that I've done. And so in verse 3, well, what are the consequences? He says, so now I say that I will not drive them out before you. 
He's saying, I told you to do that and you didn't do it. So I'm not driving them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. I wonder what things are present in our lives today because we've allowed sin to stick around that have become thorns in our own side. Things that we may attribute to the enemy. Remember Sunday I talked about the world's systems. Things that maybe we attributed to the enemy that in fact they're a consequence of the sin that we've allowed to stick around in our own lives. You see, the purpose, the purpose of the angel's arrival was not to declare that God was finished with them. But it was an act of grace designed to bring them to radical obedience. It was to bring them to radical obedience. He wasn't declaring that he was done. He was declaring that he loved them. And it was an act of grace in order to get them to turn. Because the good news tonight is that God will never allow you to sin successfully. Oh, I know the Bible says that sin is pleasurable but for a season, but it will not last. God will never allow you to successfully continue in your sin. And so what did he do? Well, he told them that he was going to allow them to experience the natural consequences of compromise. The natural consequences of compromise. And so in verse 4, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Well, yeah. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And so this almost is really like a parallel. Now, now what does it say that he came up from Gilgal to Bochum, right? And so now they, they say, hey, look, we shouldn't have done that. They lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of the place Bochum, and they sacrificed. So this becomes a new place for them. This becomes a new uh, remembrance or a new covenant, if you will, for them to remember, hey, this is where we failed, and this is where God still showed us that he loved us, Right? Those are, the, those are moments in our life where we are convicted of our sin, that we confess those sins, and that we say, God, look, despite my sinfulness, you still love me, and that you still choose to allow me to be a part of what you are doing. That is what Bochum is for them. And so they began to weep and raise their voices and say, we have sinned against you. And so Bochum became known as the place of weeping. You see, the, the result was And the result always is for me and you that the path of partial obedience always leads to weeping. Always. But thankfully, God did not leave them in their sin. He sent the angel to remind them of his covenant love for them and his grace. As we will see throughout the book of Judges, that he is always calling them. He is always calling us back to wholehearted obedience and commitment to Him. That He knows that we are able through Him. That He knows that our can'ts are often will nots. But that He, when we say, I will, when we say, yes, that that is where He can and does often the most work. And so as we begin the book of Judges tonight, I want to leave you with just a few takeaways first thing is that God calls us to surrendered 
sacrificial obedience. That God calls us to surrendered sacrificial obedience. Where in your life have you not surrendered to God's desire for you? You see, part of discipleship is that you would grow, right? That's discipleship, sanctification. And in that growth, that you would, the, the areas of your life that need to be surrendered would be revealed. And that what growing is, is that you submit to those things and that you surrender those things to God because God can do infinitely more with those things than you and I can do with those things. And so what God is calling us to is to surrender to obedience, that we would say, I want to be a part of God, God, of what you're doing. And so I get to be a part of that. So I am surrendering my will and my desires to do what you want me to do. And guess what? That will cost you. Remember David said in 2 Samuel 24, 24, I'm not going to offer a sacrifice to God if it doesn't cost me something. Easy believism is not the street to Jesus. It's going to cost you something. And so you have to surrender to that and say, God, I'm willing that you know better than I know. And the things that don't need to be present in my life, I'm willing to surrender those things to you. Even if I love those things, God, you love me more than I love the things that don't need to be in my life. That's what surrendered sacrificial obedience looks like. It could be a job. It could be an idol like a job. It could be an idol like money. It could be an idol like a possession or a person, a position, an attitude. It is surrendering that to God and saying, God, I want to be useful in the kingdom. And so I'm surrendering the parts of me that I've been holding back. Number two, can't is not a word in God's vocabulary. What are the areas in your life that you are saying, I can't? I can't forgive them. I can't tell them the truth. I can't overcome this temptation. We talked about those three things, and there's certainly more. What are those areas in your life that you say, well, I can't do that? Well, that's not a word in God's vocabulary. God, the Bible says that we are able, that I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Right? That's a very, very popular verse. And it's popular for a reason because it's true. That I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. That I am more than a conqueror, as I mentioned Sunday, in Jesus Christ. That I can. So what are the areas of your life that you're saying, I can't do that? Well, it's because, go back to number one, it's because you haven't surrendered that to God. Because when you surrender that to God, your can't becomes a can because God makes it possible. And last but not least, That when we say, I can't, that we're not fully surrendered to God, that in the midst of those failures, God's unfailing grace is always calling us back to himself. And so I hope tonight that you don't leave feeling beat up because of all the partial obedience that we all have present in our life, but that you would be encouraged, that you would say, no, I want to be more involved in what God is doing, that I want God to turn my can'ts into cans because of the grace that he shows me. So as we continue to march through the book of Judges, we'll see in many different ways, in many different people's lives, the God of unfolding grace, that he continues to provide grace upon grace, even in the midst of our failures. And that is what should compel us to surrender, to obey, to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. Pray with me tonight as we close. God, thank you. That in spite of the failure 
of the nation of Israel to completely obey you, to do simply what you call them to do, what you empowered them to do, and yet they didn't do, God still, you then sent an angel to remind them that you are faithful. God, thank you for being faithful to us. God, thank you that in the midst of our failures, God, that you are faithful. God, that you still call for all of the times God, that we rejected you before we trusted you. For all of the times that we fail you after we trusted you, that you are still there and you are still faithful. So God, would you, through your Holy Spirit, would you call us to a closer walk with you? God, would you help us in our can'ts? God, would you help us in the areas in which we're not completely surrendered to you? God, there's a reason. It's because maybe we're afraid or maybe we think we're weak or we're not able. But God, would you show us? Would you send someone to help us, to encourage us as you sent the angel? God, thank you that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And what you have begun in us, you will complete for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hope you have a great night. You have about 12 minutes.